0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lemis Abdelati from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Sarah Phillips about her book, When There Was No Aid: War and Peace in Somaliland, which was published by Cornell University Press in 2020. This book examines the trajectory of Somaliland where external intervention has been largely absent. It argues that when institutions are weak, popular discourses can play a powerful role in stabilizing peace. Sarah, welcome to the
2: show. Thank you very much for having me.
1: So I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
2: Sure. So I'm a professor of global conflict and development at the University of Sydney, and I work on issues that are related to marginalized or conflict affected states. And in this, I tend to move between the the macro levels of analysis that are favored within international relations and the more localized concerns of development and anthropology. And uh, I've done uh, years of in-depth field work across the Middle East and Africa, most of which is focused on Yemen and Somaliland, but I've also done shorter stints of work in Kenya, Jordan, Oman, Iraq and Pakistan with more to come soon, hopefully. So uh, while the areas that I focus on, I guess, are typically considered at least somewhat peripheral within the discipline of international relations, I think that they offer us these really prime vantage points on which to to see the forces of change and the forces of stasis in the world, because I think it's there that international power hierarchies really become more visible. And it's also there that the the early impacts of of global forces become most acutely felt. And I think that spending time in these places is, is actually one of the best ways to understand how the world works.
1: And that comes across really clearly uh, in this book. Um, so let me uh, ask you first, how, how did you come to write this book?
2: I guess at the most basic level the, the years that I spent living and working and researching in Yemen got me interested in Somalia and Somaliland. Like, it's just it's just across the way. It's just the, across the, the Red Sea. And I, I knew that people would come and go and you would see there's many Yemenis of, of Somali origin. Um, but the first time I actually went to Hargesa, the capital of Somaliland, I was really struck with just how familiar so much of it felt to me because of my time in Yemen, like the food and the colours and the styles of the buildings and the way that people painted their houses, but also the, the hospitality and the receptiveness and genuine curiosity in foreigners. But then I guess a little more relevant to the book I was struck by the the very strong oral tradition, the, the love of poetry, the love of stories, and and really the, the veneration for great orators and great poets. And and happily for me, the very open style of political talk, like political gossip, if you like, and the, the really deep ruminations on the meanings that may or may not be inscribed into sort of seemingly mundane occurrences or or statements, you know, made from the uh, political leaders. Um, And so I guess from this, I saw the powerful role that talking about the recent past and its connections to a desired future plays in, in shaping the conditions of political possibility, which actually, that wasn't a theme that I eventually went looking for. Um, I went there trying to understand the the nature of um, the peace building process, really, and the reasons why Somaliland was able to um, build and sustain its peace when the rest of Somalia was not. Um, But this was something that just kept coming back and back. Um, And so it became a much more um, powerful theme in, in the book as I went
1: so um, I'm hoping to dive into this argument much, much more. Um, but but before we do that, you know, many of our listeners may not have a lot of familiarity uh, with the re- region. Do you mind giving us just some beef, uh, brief, excuse me, historical background about Somaliland and Somalia?
2: Yes. Yeah, so Somaliland is the, I guess it's, if you look at the map of Somalia, which is kind of a little bit like the shape of seven, Somaliland is in the top northwestern corner and it, um was, it was a former um, British territory during the colonial period and the rest of Somalia was um, was colonised by it, Italy. And so as the colonial powers were leaving, British Somaliland, which is now Somali, um Somaliland, became independent um, and it was separate from the rest of Somalia. Now, it sustained that independence for five days and after five days um, it decided that it wanted to unify with the rest of Somalia because the, the desire for Somali nationalism and to reunite all Somalis under the one flag under one nation state was very profound. Um, the union did not go as Somalilanders had hoped. Um, it, it fairly quickly went awry. Um, and Somalilanders it, it seems fairly quickly wished that they had not uh, joined with the rest of Somalia. But the period of the, the fact that it was independent for these five days is, is very very sharply etched into the independence discourse. And People will talk about it as the. It essentially forms the linchpin of Somaliland's legal argument for why it should be and why it granted independence and why it is a legitimate sovereign state. And so the idea is that this is not a secessionist movement. This is a reclamation of an independence that was once internationally recognised. And so, as I said, the the period of union was a very troubled one for. Somaliland and the dictator Siad Barre was extremely brutal to uh, to the Isaac clan, particularly in the northwest, uh, culminating in a bombing campaign that is largely remembered, or widely remembered rather, as a genocide by many within Somaliland. And that was in 1998, and it really helped to galvanize the Somali nationalist movement or Somali national movement. Um, which was a, it had sort of been this grassroots insurgency, but it really helped to bring it together. Um, and ultimately, uh, Siad Bare was forced from power. He left in early 1991. And shortly after that, Somaliland claimed its independence. But that's never been recognized by any other state formally.
1: Thank you for that. Um, now, as you mentioned, we have this puzzle here, right? Why is it that, Large scale violence ends in Somaliland but continues elsewhere in Somalia. So, I want to ask first how you tackle this question in terms of methodology. So, what sort of research did you do for the book?
2: It was largely interview based, or it was very predominantly interview based. I did a few short little surveys that was trying to sketch out the the backgrounds of some of the key elites throughout Somaliland's uh, formational period particularly, but really it was interview-based. And so I interviewed people from um, from most of the, the ministries, you know, ministers, vice ministers, journalists, activists, a lot of students, um, uh people that you would you know you you have these happenstance meetings on the street and you sit and you have tea and you learn more than you could have imagined so you know essentially you try to to go and be open to having as many conversations as you possibly can and that sort of can help you to to pull away a bit from this elite discourse about what Somaliland is and what independence means to Somalilanders. I must add, though, that I did the vast majority of my research, as most foreigners do, in the, and around the capital city of Harare, And that's for a number of reasons. It's um, when I was doing this work, it was still a bit challenging to travel outside or far outside it requires um you you were there's a number of checkpoints you're required to have um an armed guard with you which is of course expensive you have to hire a four-wheel drive that can traverse the roads it it, the, the cost of this adds up and that means that Foreign researchers and journalists and diplomats who come to visit the country tend to get a fairly hagasa-centric view of what Somaliland is and what independence means. And so I tried to talk to as many people as I could who came from outside of Somaliland. But I'm I'm very attentive to the fact that this I was the independence discourse that I talk about, and which I know we'll will unwrap a little more um, shortly, is most pronounced within that center belt of Somaliland. Um and it is more sharply disputed on the in the periphery. And so I wanted to try to to understand both, but I, I'm I've got to be open about the fact that I I actually physically was in that central area that largely produces the independence discourse.
1: And I'm looking forward to as you said unpacking that much more. Um, so the book is sort of pushing back against what you call the fragile states discourse. What do you mean when you talk about this fragile states discourse?
2: So what I refer to as the fragile states discourse is this way of understanding the key drivers of poverty, insecurity, and violence in the global South. And it's it feeds into policy doctrine among you know, northern donors and multinationals and the you know the big institutional development banks and it's essentially this idea that we've got this group of countries that either can't or won't for whatever reason, provide key political, economic and social goods for for their citizens and that the best way of sort of helping them to extract themselves from this is through institutional building, you know, development programs that target the institutions of the state and help them to become more capable. Um, and also, you know, poverty reduction, peace building initiatives, post-conflict reconstruction, all get kind of wrapped up in this. But it's, it's a way, I, I think uh, that it, as a form of labelling a place, it, uh, it says a lot more about the person doing the labelling than the place that is actually being labelled. Um, and, you know, many people within the states that have been so labelled find this just a, an absolutely ridiculous Turn of, of phrase, that, that they are fragile in some way and that this tells you anything meaningful about the nature of political contestation uh, within their countries, but also the ways in which their countries are enmeshed in much broader political uh, economies and power hierarchies. You know the fragile states discourse basically diagnoses the problem as it sees it, um, and the reasons that um, that poverty and insecurity and violence can seem so entrenched as a, de- a, function, a a product of the domestic. It is almost silent on the ways in which the domestic politics are ensnared in in much broader power hierarchies it's it's silent about colonialism it's silent about the nature of cold war power politics and rivalries it really just says there's a problem in this state you are fragile and here's how we're going to fix it by focusing only on the individual state in question
1: thank you for that um So you say that Somaliland challenges uh, the fragile states discourse, um, and one element of that has to do with its relative isolation from the international system. Can you describe that relative isolation for us?
2: Yeah, so because Somaliland was not recognized at the time that it claimed its independence and, as I said, has never been formally recognized by any other state, this means that it is unusually detached from the quote unquote, normal ways in which so-called fragile states are um, engaged by external actors. So it is not eligible for uh, any form of loans from the international community, or certainly it wasn't during its formational period. I should probably just emphasise actually that Most of the book's arguments relate to the first 10 years or so of Somaliland's proclaimed independence. And it was this 10-year or so period in which there was almost no external assistance or external interaction coming into this into the country it's changed quite considerably since that time there is actually you walk down the streets and there's un vehicles everywhere and there's billboards advertising you know the various works of you know all manner of international um, development agency Um, but that aid does not go directly to the government or the vast majority of it does not go to directly to the government. That's changing slightly, but what I'm really interested in is that sort of first ten year period that we can look at, because in this period, which is where Somaliland was consolidating its its peace and you know sort of re- demobilizing after a really violent period of the civil war, you start to see things like you know that the fact that there was no diplomatic or financial support available to to the state. Um, there was no access to weapons you know the the Somalia Somalia as a whole was sanctioned was under a weapons sanction the government of Somalia can now access weapons but Somaliland cannot so there was no ability to just go and and, and buy weapons um it was also separated from um from the ability to access loans, like it could not go and um, get get a loan from the IMF or from the World Bank. Um, But that also meant that it didn't have, it wasn't in debt, it wasn't struggling to pay off these large historical debts that had often been accumulated by a repressive elite. But it also meant that, you know, you didn't have any multinational or international actor who was trying to prevent the war in Somaliland ought to benefit from it and I think that's a really key difference there in the way in which Somalia was integrated into the um, into the world economy where you know of course you had just a tremendous presence of international militaries, international uh, lenders, international weapons traders, international development agencies all trying to have a say on how Somalia, Somalia rather should extract itself from its period of conflict and that it just is etched into the history of Somaliland, the fact that it, it did it was separate to this, and very, very proudly so
1: and you know in the book you make this very compelling argument that uh, as a result of this relative isolation, um, Somaliland gives us this fascinating counterfactual case, right? That arguments about the effects of international aid um, suffer from the fact that we don't have a lot of cases where aid was absent, right? And Somaliland gives us exactly this kind of case, right, where um, there there wasn't external intervention, um, and so um, you show in the book how, in the absence of external intervention. Peace ultimately comes about due to a series of pacts between elites in Somaliland. Um, can you tell us about how these elite networks function?
2: So I just I just need to sort of go into that idea that it was a, a pact as such that that developed from just this very very a large number of clan conferences. So to say that they're elite sort of gives, I think, this impression, you are coming from a Western perspective, that you we've got these um, discrete actors who are plugged into specific institutions. Actually, what happened in Somaliland was it was a gathering of clan elders and just clan members over time. So you had dozens and dozens of these clan-based conferences that were just trying to figure out, like, how are we going to demobilise? How are we going to, you know, what's what's a piece that we can accept? What sort of national vision do we want to have? What is our relationship with Somalia and the UN, importantly, going to be? And it was decided they did not want a relationship with the UN. Um, but it was these very iterative processes over sort of, they started in nineteen ninety one, and the last one finished in nineteen ninety seven. And it was about you know who gets to control the means of production, who has control over um, the port of Berbera, where you know so much of the the country's wealth was coming in and leaving. Um, it's a it's a pastoral society by and large, you know, and they they make um, money from exports by exporting cattle, basically. So you know who controlled the port of, of Berbera was extremely important. As was who controlled the, the airport in Hargesa, the capital. Um, and so you had these long drawn out conferences where people talked. And they talked and they talked and they talked and they hammered it out. So the, the most famous conference and the, the most important one was in Bottoma in 1993. And this went for about five months. You know, when you compare this to the way that the peace process was being negotiated in the rest of Somalia, like these were sort of processes that hand, went for you know, a day or a few days, up to, up to two weeks perhaps. And they tended to do so uh, in the with the noted absence of Somali delegates, whereas of course here, Everyone was from Somaliland, and everyone was acutely aware that if they were going to be spending time with um, another clan, you know, being put up by them, being fed by them um, for this long period that they were undergoing these negotiations, time shouldn't be wasted. Time was precious. Uh, this was not. You know, this was not a case of going to the UN and getting more money in which to to stretch this out. You know, this this needed to be done and this needed to be done properly because it was pretty likely that something similar was going to be expected of you and your plan next time around. Uh, And so it really helped... keep keep people's um, focus on the job at hand and I I need to mention also the the role of the women here because women were not um, involved as delegates per se um, but a lot of people who were there will recall the women as just performing this essential role of basically holding people's feet to the fire and saying you know get back there, keep going, do not come home until this is sorted out. And women perform this really crucial, almost circuit breaker role um, because, in in part, because of the nature of the Somali clan system. I don't want to overstate that too much and say it's all about clan mechanisms. There's, you know, of course, agency and other things involved. But when, when women marry, they gain the clan of their husband but they don't lose their birth clan and so it means that in times of conflict they perform this role of circuit breaker. basically they can go and talk to the clan of their clan of origin and help pre- pre- bring people more informally together and, and women really played this role to, um, to great effect during during the 1990s in, in Somaliland. This episode is
0: brought to you by Shopify.
1: Now, another way um, you show in the book that Somaliland challenges the fragile states discourse has to do with its institutions. Um, Now, many of us are familiar with the idea that countries need strong institutions in order to enforce order, but you make a fascinating argument that in Somaliland, it's weak institutions that lead to peace. Um, Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, so this came about from, from, from just talking to people about... You know, what what brings peace, and I think I, I went there sort of assuming, as most of the literature tells us, that Somaliland gained its peace through its strong hybrid institutions. You know, through the ways in which the clan was able to to mediate and then sort of govern this hybrid state, if you like. And that's the way that it's 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 by and large written about in in the literature that that Somaliland is peaceful because its institutions, um, you know, they're they're not truly powerful, but but they're pre- they're okay, you know, they're they're better than what um, what we have in Somalia, and this forms the, the you know, largely the reason for the difference between what happened in Somaliland and what was ongoing in in Somalia. And then I started listening to what people were really telling me. And I think that one of the things that my interviews really underlined for me was that the precarity of Somaliland's peace was, and I think still is, harnessed as a way of sustaining it. And what I mean by that is that Somalilanders knew, I think, that it wasn't their formal institutions like their their parliament, their bureaucratic apparatus, their, their peace force that was truly preventing a resurgence in organised large-scale violence because – but it – it also wasn't their informal institutions like their clan structures and norms, because people are very well, well aware that just as clans can be mobilized for peace, they can also be mobilized for war. So, I remember one day I'd been doing a bunch of interviews and people had been telling me that I should go and see the gold merchants in in the middle of Hargeisa. And and a number of people had said this to me in sort of rapid succession. And so I decided to to go. And the reason that people had been telling me to go was that if I wanted to understand the the level of social cohesion within Somaliland and also the way that security functions, I I should go there. So I did. And these women who are sitting in the bustling streets of Hargeisa selling gold without any visible form of protection from theft um, saw, saw me coming from a mile off, basically. They they saw me getting out of the car, you know, very obviously a foreigner, and they started to call me over and they said, you know, what's the effect of, you know, hey, take a photo, go home and show people, show people that this is how peace is sustained in Somaliland. Show, us, show them that this is who we are. And that really struck me because what I thought that they were sort of actually implicitly getting at is not only this difference between Somalia and Somaliland, um, but also the fact that Somaliland had actually experienced very violent period not that long ago. And it, that was sort of seemed to me implicitly of course to be holding up this difference you know this this idea that i just kept hearing from people that somaliland works because somalilanders want it to work they make it work like it's something done through through the sheer force of will and so i guess this is where i i really deviate from the rest of the literature on somaliland but also a lot of the literature on peace building and post conflict reconstruction as well which tends to credit either the state apparatus that was formed in in Somaliland, the clan, or Somaliland's hybrid system, which is kind of the you know, the creative or the productive combination of the clan and and the formal organisations. Because I think instead, what was really doing so much of this work is this deep understanding of their own precarity and the ease that their situation could probably become quite like Mogadishu's once again. And I can can give you an example of, of how this played out. And I think one of the most powerful ones is the 2003 presidential elections. So this was a a case in which there was initially a difference of 80, 8-0 votes between the two candidates, the the incumbent and the challenger. This is out of about half a million votes cast. Now, as you can expect, it was was very tense. People were expecting that this could quite likely turn into a a violent confrontation because there, there were problems with the election. You know, 80 votes with an election that was, you know, that, problematic um or where there was that many irregularities i should say you know it, it, it's a knife edge. it really could have gone either way as to who actually won the contest but what happened was you had of course you had a series of negotiations to try to figure out what happened but the rhetoric around this was very much about not following the path of the issue because um because you know, violence could so easily follow if people chose to mobilise for violence. So you had, you know, the the incumbent, the challenger saying, you know, I've got a choice here. You know, people keep saying that I should challenge, but I'm not going to do that because they don't want to go down the path of Mogadishu. Um, and I'm going to stand back and I'm going to say that, it, you know, I'm paraphrasing obviously here, but I'm going to say that there was some injustices done, but that's it, I'm done. Um, and he was, of course, elected in subsequent election in two thousand and ten. So, I think you've got the example there of Mogadishu's violence being used in a very real way to to stave off possible violence within within Somaliland. And there was a, a local researcher. Um, who also articulated this quite clearly to me. And this is this is back in two thousand and thirteen. So I'm conscious that this is a very fluid situation. I'm hoping to get back there soon and, and see how things have changed. But what he said to me, we were talking about what, what he saw as the major threats and he basically said something along the lines of I, I'm concerned that if the south does become more stable and the government there does begin to function, then what binds us together here is going to be affected by that. You know, he said something like, you know, what what binds us together now is that there's no other option. So, again, I was getting all these different senses that Somaliland's peace is is very much constructed against a backdrop of Mogadishu's violence. But, uh, you know, to the extent that peace in Mogadishu could even pose a threat to peace in Somaliland. So over and over again, people are comparing the peace in Somaliland to the violence real and imagined in, in the rest of Somalia. So in a, in a sense, what I took from this, I guess, is that I thought that the ability to sustain peace has not been so much despite the fragility of its institutions, but maybe also in part at least because of their fragility, You know, because people are quite aware that they can't necessarily rely on their government or clan institutions to extinguish a spark once it's been lit. And as a result, the the precarity of peace and the ease with which people believe that it could potentially come crashing down around them has been harnessed into this widespread understanding that political violence is just not worth the risk. I I don't think about this in in a rational choice kind of way, but, but more in a discursive way in which violence doesn't really present itself as an option to be rationally assessed in the first place. So I guess what I'm I'm getting at here is that I think we miss some really significant things when we assume that that the tangible institutions whether the formal institutions or the informal ones that might serve as their functional equivalents when it's these that bear the responsibility for providing a reasonably reliable guarantee against violence because I think that they're to quite a significant degree they're they're a symptom of the other factors that institutions have in our political discourse become shorthand for, which I think means that we shouldn't assume that that stronger state central governance institutions inevitably reduce violence, because I think that the case of Somaliland really demonstrates that that weaker institutions can, under some conditions at least, do this too. And what that means I think is that we're missing the causal link here and it's that causal link remember that so much of the fragile states discourse is predicated on you know it's this idea that if we want to help these states extract themselves from violence and poverty we do this by helping them to strengthen their institutions and sort of take that role of guaranteeing a reasonable level of political order and development for the population. And I, I think that what Somaliland's experience can help us to see is that many of the things that development and security practitioners have so long assumed about the way that peace and political order emerges and endures may be fundamentally wrong. Um, I think that the usual assumption that political order basically increases in lockstep with increases to the capacity of state or state-like institutions, Somaliland sort of suggests that maybe this can be flipped on its head. And if it can be flipped on its head because the the precarity of state or state-like institutions can also underpin political order, then I think we were never actually looking at a causal relationship to begin with,
1: and that really gets at sort of the broader implications of the book, right? And thinking sort of beyond Somaliland as well. Um, but I want to ask you about something that's sort of woven throughout the book, and that you mentioned a couple of times um, at the at the top, uh, which is the independence discourse. Um, so that that seems really central to the book. What is the independence discourse and what, what role does it play here?
2: So the independence discourse is this idea that, as, as you've said, I've kind of gestured at a, a couple of times already, but it's, it's this idea that Somaliland is rightfully independent from the rest of Somalia. And what it does is it really constructs Somaliland as the other, or to Somalia, or actually, I should should put that better. It, it constructs Somalia as the other to Somaliland, um, and it says that you know Somalia, it is in the situation that it's in because it is dependent on the international. It is dependent on international money. It is intended uh, in, uh, dependent on international institutional support. It is dependent on ish, international security interventions. We are not we did this, we negotiated our peace under the shade of the trees. You know, Somalia negotiated theirs in five-star hotels in Nairobi. So it's this idea that Somaliland's independence is rightful and should be recognised by the independent international community because Somaliland has lessons to teach not only Somalia but the rest of the world. And what I think this does in terms of Somaliland's domestic politics is it serves as it serves as a guide I think to the kinds of political behavior that are acceptable and unacceptable um, and one of the unacceptable things is to you know engage in politics violently one of the unacceptable things is to suggest that you um, that you know Somalia and Somaliland should should reunite, for example. But I think what it also does is it serves as this mechanism that reminds people, like I said before, that the past was not so far away and we could again become that if we don't really hold on to what it is that makes Somaliland so special. Um, you know, it, it really draws these very sharp and I think sometimes quite uncomfortable Distinctions between Somaliland and an imagined Somali other, in which you know Somalia is violent, Somaliland is not, and you'll have people say things like, um, you know, if I go to Somalia, I will be murdered, but here I can leave my my door open and all my cash lying around, and it's no problem. I mean, of course, you you look around and people do lock their doors, and you know they have barbed wire. You know, these sorts of things are clearly not actually how people really. Think about things and behave, but there is this purposeful articulation to it, and I suspect you know a very purposeful articulation of it to people who look like me, you know, who are coming from um, from foreign universities to study and and write about Somaliland. Like there is a very clear projection of this to to outsiders, and I'm not saying that that means that it's it's all a performance. No, I think it is. I think it is genuinely believed, and I think there is a lot to it. But I also think that it is purposely sort of um, projected at the outside world as a way of underscoring the the achievements that Somaliland has and the reasons that it should be um, that it should be recognised. And I think that can become a little problematic when you have um, researchers and development actors who come to the country for fairly short periods of time and only spend time in the capital and sort of don't get to see the ways in which people will actually sort of quietly say, actually, I think this can also pose a problem to us in the future. So, you know, it's like, like any discourse, it, it's full of competing sort of threads, but I think that the core function that it serves within Somaliland politics is as a check, um, as, a, as a way of saying what is a way of keeping in people's minds what is common sense and what is not, what political actions are acceptable and what political actions are just not going to be rationally assessed in the first place.
1: Thank you, Sarah. Now, I want to make sure listeners know that in addition to the very sophisticated uh, arguments that are in the book, you know, you you do this wonderful job of moving between the particulars in Somaliland, the, the nuance of that case, and between sort of broader questions related to how it is that we think and react to fragile states, um, our assumptions about the relationship between institutions and peace, and, uh, et cetera. In addition to these very uh, sophisticated arguments, the book is also beautifully written. Um, so it's a very sort of uh, enjoyable read. Uh, and I think listeners should know that. Now, Sarah, we've uh, Skimmed the surface really of the of the rich content that's in the book. Um, is there anything we haven't covered that you think is important for listeners to know?
2: Maybe just if I can go into the the, the subject of the the title you know, when there was no aid, um, because I think we tend to look at the, the, there is the debate about the drivers of poverty, insecurity, and violence in the global south, or you know so often labelled the fragile states that really keeps the focus on aid, and. You know, I actually think that aid, um, while it's the most discussed form of external intervention, I don't think it's the most significant to the daily realities of the global south, not by a long shot. And I think that the debate about aid, and this is one of the things that I'm really trying to get across in the book as well, is that it serves to mask much bigger global inequalities while keeping the focus quite discreetly, on how external actors can intervene smarter, how they can do more with less, which I think helps us to overlook all the things about the world that make intervention seem necessary in the first place. So I think that the issues that the aid debate makes seem urgent, they they can't actually be solved by finding ways to deliver aid more effectively, and this is because the issues that make aid or other forms of intervention seem so urgent are actually the much bigger impediments to inequality that exist within the world, in which I'm talking about the things that Somaliland was so unusually disconnected from in the first ten years or so of its existence. So I'm talking about, you know, diplomatic and financial support for repressive regimes by northern states. You know, the the access to weapon sales for repressive regimes, you know, the militarization of northern economies and the privileging of security and counterterrorism concerns over other domestic issues like human rights, the inequitable trade regimes, global debt regimes, you know, all of these sorts of things. You know, I could give you a whole laundry list of them and I, I do in the book, but my point is that all of these have got stronger levers for change within the home country of the northern-based donors than they do within the tar- the country that's being targeted for intervention. And yet the, the discourse about fragile states is, is very silent on this. It's all about the need to improve the mechanisms by which aid is developed because this is the way that we're going to extract them from the problems that they face. And the book is really saying no, it's, a, it's much bigger than this. And the fact that Somaliland didn't receive aid is part of it, but it's actually that it was not connected to these much bigger global inequalities for that relatively short period of time, about 10 years that I'm talking about, that helps us to, I think, sort of see the ways in which these much bigger issues are imprinted on the prospects for peace and development in the global south.
1: Thank you for adding this that, that important point. Um, so we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, so I want to ask you one final question. Um, this book was published in 2020. Uh, what are you working on now?
2: Um, well, I'm, I'm really keen to start traveling again to, to get this new project underway. And this has only just become possible again in the last few months from Australia because of the, the border closures due to to COVID. So I'm working on a project that looks at how people in conflict affected states talk about groups that have been labelled as, as terrorists, you know, and these groups that have a, an established presence in their areas. It's funded by the Australian Research Council, and it's it's largely drawing from my experiences in Yemen and from this article that I published a couple of years ago now in the European Journal of International Relations, which is essentially arguing that the ways that Yemenis talk about al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which is, of course, the, 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 the branch of al-Qaeda that is based in Yemen, they tend to frame this group as a pretty fluid entity rather than one that's entirely coherent or organizationally rational. Um, and instead of seeing it as being inevitably opposed to the state, al-Qaeda there is understood more as being this kind of Way in which elites can discipline um, a civilian population with plausible deniability, um, and so I'm really interested in the ways that Yemenis talk about Al Qaeda. Um, but I'm also going to be taking that more widely to look at um, Somalia, Somaliland, Pakistan, and Iraq as well, because I'm I'm just I'm fascinated in the ways in which the local understandings of the things that affect people's daily lives and daily security tend to be extracted from or overlooked or marginalized in the ways in which counterterrorism or you know as we're talking about some development discourses are um, play out in, in the international community because I think the ways that local people talk about militant groups around them are often sort of just assumed to be irrational or partisan or just, you know, they don't, they don't really get it. And I think that is profoundly wrong. I'm not trying to say that the, the ways in which people talk about the, these organisations are always and inevitably true at all. What I'm interested in is understanding what these beliefs do because I think they do a lot and I think that by ignoring them we, we completely or we risk completely misunderstanding what's actually happening on the ground. So there's some threads from the book on Somaliland that, that we'll be carrying through to, to this current work.
1: That sounds like a great project. Um, well Sarah, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for being on the show today. Me too, thank you so much for the invitation. The book is Sarah Phillips's When There was no Aid. War and Peace in Somaliland, published by Cornell University Press in 2020. Thank you for listening.